It's been interesting, hasn't it, to, to hear the different things and to see those candles extinguished and, and realize the depth of the darkness. But even as we do this <coughs> and think about Passover, um, perhaps you know, perhaps you don't, that the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar that has 354 days, which leaves it a little bit short each year, as you can imagine. And so what happens is every 19 years, there's seven years that are considered leap years, and we're in one of those leap years right now in the Jewish calendar. And so what they do is they add a second month of Adar. And so we're in Adar 2. It's the 24th day of Adar 2 right now. Isn't that good to know? And um, the first day of Nisan is coming. Next Saturday will be the first day of Nisan. And, of course, Nisan is the first month in the Jewish calendar, and that's when we get into Passover. And so we'll have Passover. Um, the Jewish people will have Passover coming Oh, yeah, the Friday, Friday before Easter, right? Saturday, yeah, okay. Um, it's, it's up here somewhere. Does that ever happen to you? Yeah, good, amen. God's so good. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that, though, because I'd like to do a commercial for Monday Thursday service. Are you ready? Okay, and so Monday Thursday, uh, which is the Thursday before Easter Sunday, we're going to have a monodrama, all right? And a monodrama, what that is, is I'm going to take on the person of John, okay, older John, and look back on that night. I believe that that Thursday night for John was one of the most significant moments in his life. I think that's why he dedicated so much of his gospel to that night. And so I'd like to invite you to come, and through a monodrama, we're going to have a set here that will help us understand what the upper room looked like, who was sitting where, why they did the certain things that they did, and then look at the rest of that night a little bit. And so it'll be a special time for us to really grab hold of what this meant, because we call it the Last Supper, but in actuality, it was, but it was Passover that they observed, and it led to our communion, and it has, our communion has our roots in that. So in order for us to truly understand communion, we need to understand what was going on in that room. So I invite you to come, and it would be great. Commercial's over. Let's get into the Word of God, shall we? Amen. So God, as we do that, <laughs> we open your Word. Oh, amazing to think that as we open this this book, we're looking at ancient words that you've entrusted, Lord, to us for this day. Oh God, open our hearts to hear what you have to say. May you speak clearly to us, God. Your children are listening. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So we're in the book of Ephesians. We're looking at this idea of what does it mean to live richly. And um, by living richly, so many times in the world, there's a definition for what living richly means, but as we look at God's Word, it's a whole different understanding of what it means to live in the riches of God and what that means, and, and Ephesians does a beautiful job of unpacking that. Before we step into our text today, I want to kind of set up some background for this, and especially as we move into these two chapters, chapters 2 and 3 of Ephesians, which I believe are some of the most significant chapters there are for us to be able to understand the amazing and miraculous plan of God. God has a meta-narrative, and, and that meta-narrative is revealed for us in the 
the thread of redemption that finds its way all through Scripture. And as we look at that, understanding how Scripture goes together becomes very, very important because if we're not careful, we come each week and we look at a section of Scripture, we, we take a look at it, and then we come and we take a look at another section, we take a look at another section, and if we're not careful, we don't get it into the context that belongs. And if we don't get it into the context where it belongs, then it's hard for us to really bring the application out of it that can be the most powerful for our lives. And so it's important that we take a look at that, understand that the, the letter of Ephesians was written to a group of people at a point in time for a specific purpose. And so as Paul wrote this, he wrote it for a reason to the people that he was writing it for. God, in his amazing grace, has chosen to preserve this letter for us so that we can learn from it. But as we look at Scripture as a whole, there's a couple of ways that people look at that. Yeah, there's differences in each one of those ways, but there's overview two ways. And one way is that people will look at the Old Testament and they'll see promises to these people called the Israelites, and that there were promises that God made to them, and, and that God chose them, made promises to them, and, and that they didn't live up to what they needed to, and so God removed the promises from them and entrusted those promises to the church. And, and that's called replacement or fulfillment theology, so that the, the promises that, that God gave to the nation of Israel, to the people of Israel, are, are being fulfilled in the church today. But there's a second way of looking at Scripture, and that way looks at Scripture as the Old Testament, God's revelation for his plan to redeem a people for himself that includes promises and covenants made to a chosen people, a nation that he chose for himself, the nation of Israel. And those promises were made to that nation and the covenants were made with that nation and that those covenants and promises have been fulfilled or are yet to be fulfilled to the people that the promises were made. And so as we look at at God's word, what we see is that, and, and this is what makes the letter of Ephesians so incredibly important, is that it's just one of those places where we see that for some reason, God, in his amazing grace and mercy, has chosen to allow the nations, all the nations other than Israel, the Gentiles, to somehow be grafted into these promises that belong to Israel. It's not that we replace Israel. It's not that we somehow fulfill these promises, but it's that we're grafted into them even as we wait for the continued fulfillment of them. And that's what makes watching what's happening in Israel right now today so exciting because so many of these promises are being fulfilled yet in our midst. And these promises are not being fulfilled because Israel is faithful, but rather they're being fulfilled because God is faithful to the promises that he's made. And so as we look at this, at this letter to Ephesians, and it's going to particularly come, it's going to start this week, but it's going to really show up in the next two weeks as we continue to unpack this. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because Paul, according to chapter 3, verse 1, is a prisoner for one reason and one reason only, for the sake of the Gentiles. 
See, Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter, and he was in prison for only one reason. It wasn't because he did anything against Rome. It wasn't because he did. It was because he was teaching that Gentiles could be grafted into the promise of God. And because of that, he was in prison for the sake of the Gentiles. So as he writes this letter, it's, it's so exciting because Ephesians, Ephesus, was a city that he was in for two years. And, and it tells us that the first three months of those two years, according to Acts chapter 18, the, the, uh, the first three months of, the, of those two years, he spent in the synagogue. And he was teaching the Jews. And there were many Jews who came to understand Yeshua as Messiah and came to understand that. But then after three months, there were some people who opposed that. And so Paul moved outside of the synagogue and began to teach. And Gentiles started coming. They started coming to know Yeshua as Messiah. And so we've got this church, according to verse 22 of chapter 1, the church is formed. Now that word church that in the original language means a community, a gathering, a a calling out of people who are following Jesus is what that's talking about. And so as we look at that, Paul now is writing to this church in Ephesus. And he's writing to Jew and Gentile. And Paul never stopped observing the festivals and things like that. All through the journeys in Acts, we see that he was trying to get back to Jerusalem for the Passover. And, and we see that he was observing the festivals. He was observing customs. And he was doing that. So he never stopped being a Jew. The amazing thing about the New Covenant, the New Testament that we have, is that now Gentiles are allowed to be brought in without becoming Jewish, and Jewish are allowed to be in the church without becoming Gentiles. And so it's this beautiful unity, what we see in chapter 1, verse 10, this unity of things being brought together. So the first three chapters of Ephesians, I would suggest to you, are Paul writing to a mixed group, Jew and Gentile, together in one church. And that's why throughout the first two chapters, you see you and yours, and we and us, okay? And so you see a difference there between who he's talking to. At one point, he's talking to us, and I believe at that point, he's talking to Israel. For example, if you see in in chapter 1, verse 12, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. So we who were first, the Jews, and you also, you Gentiles. So as Paul writes this letter, for me, this is really exciting because you need to understand, and it gets lost on us because we believe that the church is ours. Like we deserve it, we earn it, and all of that. We, We feel that way because predominantly the church is Gentile now. But we forget that the roots that we're grafted into are, are Jewish. And, and so as we look at this, we see that what's the most amazing thing, and, and when we look at the, the praise of his glory, the praise of his glory, the glorious inheritance of his holy people, see, what this is is Jew and Gentile coming together and being able to be found forgiven in Jesus And for a Gentile, in this day and age, when this letter was written, this would have been like amazing. 
Because prior to this, it wasn't possible. Prior to this, you could not step into a relationship with God without doing all sorts of things that would cause you to become Jewish and convert to Jewishness. So here's, here's exciting. So as we look at this passage, it makes it even more vibrant and even more alive. As, we've looked at, as we look at 2, verses 1 through 10, and so many of us have, have verses memorized that have become significant for us. And some of you probably have this verse memorized. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And amen, right? I mean, it's like, this is terrific. But when you see it in context and when you begin to unfold that, and as we do that over the next couple of weeks, I think what we're going to see is that, oh my goodness, this means even more than I thought it did. Because we're able to declare this unbelievable, beautiful truth that in Jesus, all the world can be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Amen. All right, so that's background. Now let's jump in, shall we? All right, so we're going to see that we're saved by grace through faith so that we can display the riches of God's grace. And the riches of God's grace for this original audience is Jew and Gentile coming together. It's the same for us, but how do we reveal the riches of God's grace? And as we see that, we see first and foremost that apart from God, we're dead in our sin, dead. As for you, here we go, you, us, watch for this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and the following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. So we see, as we start out here, that apart from God, we are dead in our sin. Dead. And, and it's pretty clear. So the title of the message today is The Quick and the Dead. Because we're going to contrast the two. We're going to contrast what it means to be dead and what it means to be alive. And maybe you don't understand that that's what quick means. But if you're a Western watcher, you were all over that, right? You're like, oh man, we're going to see a Western today. I was going to wear boots, but John Bakken had them. So as we, as we look at that... Um, as we look at this idea in the King James Version, and I remember when I memorized this verse in the King James Version, it was one of my favorites. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in your trespasses and sins. Wasn't it great to memorize in King James? How many of you did that, right? I mean, it was like, how cool, this poetic language. But see, the thing is, is in the King James one, it says, and you hath he quickened, if you notice, that's in italics, because it's not really in the text there. It's just King James couldn't wait. He wanted to talk all about being made alive before he focused on being made dead. Because in actuality, in the text, it doesn't come until verse 5, where, where it talks about us being made alive. Because first of all, we focus on the fact that apart from God, we're dead. Absolutely dead, spiritually dead. See, God came to Adam in the garden, right? And he said to him, he said, you can eat from any tree you want, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good or evil, because if you eat from that tree, you will, you will die. Satan came along and said, you won't die. And they took the fruit. And you know what happened? They died. 
No, they didn't drop on the ground in that moment. But the relationship with God was severed. And spiritually, they were dead. And sin entered into the world. That was the first candle we extinguished. Darkness came into the world. And so we're told in these verses that we were, at one point, dead in our transgressions and sins. We were over here in darkness. Death, darkness, sin, despair, hopelessness, lies, deceit, bitterness, anger, rage, cheating, all of these things belong over here in this realm of darkness. And it's a realm that's watched over by the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit whose work in those who are disobedient. See, the majority of the world lives over here in this place that's disobedient. It's darkness. It's despair. It's despondency. You used to live there. The actual word that's translated live in the NIV is actually a word that's, that's called walked or, or walked about, wandered. It's kind of like, you know, Crocodile Dundee going on a walkabout, right? Just mindlessly meandering and wandering through the darkness. You can almost imagine stumbling around, not knowing where you're going, not knowing what's going on. That's who you were. And Paul said, so were they. They us also lived among them and just gratified the cravings of the flesh, the very core nature of who we are. See, that, that sinful nature that, that's alive in each one of us, that we're born with, that sinful nature that longs for, for just junk to be in our lives. And we live trying to satisfy that. And that's a part of our life that can never be satisfied. It always wants more. It never gets enough. And we're dead. And in that place, by the very nature of who we are, we deserve the wrath of God. We were worthy and had earned and had deserved God's wrath. So sometimes we might see signs and things that say God's not mad at you. Listen, you're worthy and you've deserved the wrath of God. Every one of us has. Because apart from God, we're dead in our sin. But listen, with God, in Christ, we're made alive. I'm really glad that the passage doesn't end there. Aren't you? You see, it says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. By grace, you have been saved. I love that. He, he, he brings both into this verse. See, he says that God raised us because of his great love. God, who's rich in mercy. See, God loves you. He created you. He made you. He knit you together. He loves you. Even though you're an object of his wrath by the very nature of who you are, he loves you. And because of his great mercy, he makes you alive. See, mercy is, is not getting what you deserve. See, the, the, the penalty, 
the sentence that we have deserved over here in our darkness is eternal separation from God. That's what we've chosen. That's what we've earned. But God, in his amazing love for us, has chosen not to give us what we deserve, but rather to give us life. And and so we see that it's by grace you've been saved. Even when we were dead, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Whew. What's that mean? When, when you read that, right? Where is it up there? Oh, there it is. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. I get that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. I don't feel like I am. Do you? Right? You know, I mean, I'm here. So in what way have I been raised up with Christ and seated with him? See, I love this. This this harkens back to that sealing of the Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing, right? Remember we looked at that a couple of weeks ago? The Holy Spirit seals us, and, and he's a deposit for what looks ahead. Listen, when God says something, you can be absolutely sure it's going to happen. Amen? So if God makes a promise, he's going to fulfill it. If God says something's going to happen, that's going to happen. And so I believe what Paul's doing here is he's, he's saying, listen, I am so sure about what God's going to do is, is, is when, we, when we step into the presence of God, we're going to be right by him. I'm so sure that's going to happen. I'm talking about it as if it happened already. Whew. And when you think about it, right, our life is this long and our eternity is forever, right? It's like, yeah, it's practically here. It might feel like it's a long way off, but listen, it's quicker than you think that we're going to be with him forever. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. Soon and very soon, my king is coming. Amen? And I will be with the one I love with unveiled face. I'll see him. And my soul will be satisfied, right? And so as we look at that, we consider that, we realize that that God has come to us and made us alive. And Paul's talking about those who have come to be followers of Jesus Christ, having been saved by grace. And so it's this idea, the defibrillator that comes on you, you know, and and you're lying there and and there's no pulse and they put the defibrillator paddle, you know, and then, you know, you're jumping in and, and then, and, and I don't know about you, but, but I believed what the television showed me about that. And, and so I thought that's exactly what a defibrillator was all about. But, Chad, is it true that some of the medical shows on TV may not be exactly accurate? Maybe a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe a little. All right, okay. So, so, but fortunately, the Internet's there, and that's never wrong. Um, I should have stood out from behind the pulpit for that, sorry. Okay. <clears throat> In simplest terms, defibrillators cannot start a stopped heart. In fact, they work by stopping a heartbeat. A weird problem heartbeat, that is. A powerful electric shock can actually control, alt, delete a heart that's pumping irregularly or too fast in hopes of resetting the heart to its correct rhythm. Is that right? 
Okay, good. Whew, all right. <laughs> it had five stars. So, all right. Um, <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so what that means, right? What, what that means is this. I love how this, how this analogy ties to our text. See, in this area of darkness, we're dead men walking. We're, we're dead men walking. See, there's a life. There's a, there's a heart that's beating but there's no pulse. See, as soon as the heart stops beating, there's no hope. A defibrillator can't help a heart that's not beating anymore. All a defibrillator can do is help a heart that's beating irregularly. So over here, there's a heartbeat, but there's no pulse, spiritually dead. And so this, this idea of grace and mercy coming and, and taking that, that heart that, that is is beating irregularly, that's, 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 that's sinful nature that's causing this heart to believe that these things that are sinful are things that need to be embraced and hold on to. And, and it takes that heart that's been given over, desperately wicked, deceitful, desperately wicked, it takes that heart and it stops it for a minute, second, and regeneration, Holy Spirit, Titus, okay, and, and it makes you alive. Oh, please, somebody say amen. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I, I don't have much more energy to put into that. You're alive. You were dead, and now you're alive. Oh, man. That's why you can hardly sit in your seats out there. You're like, hey. How many of you have been saved? Amen. Yeah. This is a safe place to say that because probably most of us are, you know, so it's like we'd be in the majority. And so, yeah, amen. We've been saved, but why? How? What's the deal there? For God, we display the riches of his grace. Listen, we've been saved for God. Apart from God, we're dead, alive in God, uh, with God, made alive in Christ, and for God, displaying the riches of his grace. We are, we are given the riches of his grace so that we can display them to the world. See, it's, it says, in order that. I love Paul. When you read Paul enough, you see that he just keeps doing, therefore, for this reason. You know, I mean, it's all over the place. That's why the whole letter all ties together. In order that, <clears throat> in the coming ages, <clears throat> he may show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us. It's his kindness that draws us to repentance. It draws us to repentance so we can turn from darkness towards the light to us in Christ Jesus, for it's by grace you've been saved. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. I don't know if how many of you have watched that movie Titanic with Leonardo DiCaprio, and there's that scene towards the end where he's gripping onto the board, right? And it's freezing cold in the water, and he's blowing the whistle, and, and all of a sudden he stops blowing, and, and so she needs the whistle. She takes the whistle from him, peels his hands off, and he goes falling down towards the bottom, right? Very sad. Um, and Do you remember the old hymn? I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. 
From the water lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me. Oh man, it's like when nothing else could help, love lifted me. That's the picture we get here. By grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. I was sinking in sin. I was in darkness. I was in despair. I was lost. I had no hope whatsoever. I was sinking with no way to save myself. And God reached down and pulled me out and brought me into life. Amen? Whoo! And we're to show that to the world. And it's like, how can I not? See, do you know my Jesus? Have you, have you met him? Has he, has he made a change in your life? Listen, one of the things that jumped out in the text to me was in verse one, verse two, I used to live here. I don't live here anymore. This is where I used to walk about. This is where I walk about now. I am not in the realm of the ruler of this world. I am the realm of King Jesus who loves me and gave himself for me. And he rescued me so that I could do good works that he prepared in advance for me to do. And those good works are display the riches of his grace to everyone I come up to. So how do we do that? He has prepared this work for you. It's ready to go. So every person you bump into is a person that God has prepared to meet you. Or more importantly, to meet Jesus through you. Okay? So you're standing outside the elevator. Somebody walks up. Are you going up or down? Amen. They're going to answer, right? I used to be going down. I'm going up now. Can I talk to you about that? Every person you meet who's trapped in darkness, God has placed eternity in their hearts. They long to know what it means to have the light that has been entrusted to you. They're in despair, they're wandering, they're lost. They're trying constantly to fill themselves with things that can never satisfy. It's not a secret. If I had the cure for cancer, I would tell everyone I know how to be cured from cancer. And that's just a little bit of help. I know, I know the cure for sin. And it's Jesus. I'm undone by the mercy of Jesus. Gabe, let's sing about that. Undone by the goodness of the Lord. We've sung this song a couple of times and it just seems like the one we have to finish with today. I don't know about you, but I get excited about this. Would you stand, please? And if you don't know the song, I think you'll pick it up rather quickly. But if you do, don't be shy. Amen.